Cairo, Seattle. And this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, actor and comedian Julia Sweeney. Julia was a Saturday Night Live cast member for four seasons in the early 90s. She's written three books, performed several one-woman shows, and done everything from consulting and playing a role on Sex and the City to producing Desperate Housewives. And most recently, she played A.D. Bryant's mom on the Hulu show Shrill, based on the life of past Your Last Meal guest, Lindy West. And this month, Julia is performing her comedy show Older and Wider in Seattle and Spokane, Washington. Now prepare yourself. You're about to fall in love with Julia Sweeney. I fell in love with Julia Sweeney. And we talk about everything from how her husband feels about how much she loves eating alone. When I told him that, he was like upset. It was almost like saying, I want to have sex alone from now on. It's like, (laughs) what? (laughs) To the gift she gave herself for a recent birthday. On my 60th birthday, so now I'm 62, almost in a half. I decided I was never going to diet again. We'll also learn the origin story of one of Canada's favorite desserts, the Nanaimo bar. Julie and I talked about all sorts of things that I couldn't quite find a place for in the episode. So stick around after the end credits for a particularly robust blooper segment where we talk about everything from Quentin Tarantino to hot dog buns. And now, without further ado, my conversation with Julia Sweeney. You were in my generation of Saturday Night Live when I was a young teen who desperately wanted to be on the show and my friend and I would make our sketches. So when I read on Wikipedia, America's number one news source, that you, I mean, you weren't doing improv for very long when you got on the show. Can you tell your story of what you went to school for, what kind of work you were doing after, and this rapid ride to stardom? Yeah. Why did I even get on that show? I asked myself that question. (laughs) I loved movies so much in college, even though I got a degree in economics, but I loved movies most of all. And I came to LA to be in show business somehow, not as an actor. And I came and I got a job as an accountant at Columbia Pictures. And I really loved it. And I thought everyone in town would talk about movies day and night. And it turns out, no, it's a company town. Like it may as well have been Kaiser Aluminum in Spokane. Like it's just the local people. And that was upsetting. And then I realized that to get ahead in accounting, I had to learn more about a field I cared nothing about. And I read a review of the Groundlings in the paper and decided to sign up for classes because they said they taught classes to non-professionals. Like you didn't have to be an actor. Otherwise, I would never have signed up. Yeah. And within a few classes, I knew I wanted to change my life and be in comedy because I had always been funny, but I didn't have any understanding of how to organize my funniness into something that was useful or saleable to others. And the Groundlings kind of showed me how to do it. It didn't happen right away. But a few years later, I got on Saturday Night Live. So it worked out. Wikipedia said it was one year after you started with the Groundlings just taking classes. Is that true? No, it wasn't really. It was more like two years. And also there was two years before that where I took classes. Okay. So you get into the Sunday company, that's like their farm team. And then you get asked to be in the main company. So I did the Sunday company for a year, but that was after two years of taking classes. But still people wait their whole lives for this. And you just took classes. I know it was really, well, I, of course I was a comic genius that helped. (laughs) Um, 
And I was incredibly lucky, even though I'm not trying to put myself down. I think I was good and I think I was good for the show and I liked it. But when I see people now who get on, they're way more advanced than me. Like, I never really cared that much about sketch comedy. Like, I would watch movies in my dressing room while the show was going on. Like, (laughs) I didn't watch it when I left. Compared to, say, Lorraine Newman, who's a good, pretty good friend of mine. She is such a hardcore comedy person. She goes to, she knows everybody's coming up. She goes to every theater. Like she watches it all. She goes to sketch comedy festivals in San Francisco. Like I would never do that. I just don't care about it that much. Do you? Like I don't know sl- what that means about me, but that's what the truth is. So when you were <laughs> doing it, did you enjoy doing it? You just don't really enjoy consuming it? Oh yeah. It? Oh no, I loved it. I love doing it. I love getting better at it. Every Monday for decades, and even today, Saturday Night Live creator and producer Lorne Michaels would take that week's celebrity guest host out to dinner. With a group of actors, one of, of the main character of the main cast, us main cast. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, this is going to be a long interview. <laughs> oh, I'm into it. <laughs> and... There were a few people he always asked to go. You know, comedians are mostly crazy people and they're very unpredictable and you can't invite everyone even to a dinner. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So for whatever reason, I would say over the four and a half years that I was there, I'm sure I went to 80% of those dinners, maybe really 90%. So he always asked me and I think it's because I was a good listener. I was also pretty smart about what was going on in the world or other things. And he didn't like talking about show business, Lauren. So you had to have other things to talk about. So Al Franken was the other one. So we were always there, me and Al. Mm -hmm. So that was like this privileged thing where you get to see a person, often huge star, you know, sit at a dinner with them with say five or six or seven people at the dinner. And we always sat at the same table that was round. So we all could see each other. Were you always going to the same restaurant? Yeah, and we always went to Orso. There was like a standing reservation. When there was a show on Saturday, Lauren had this this reservation. And Orso's Italians, like I had never heard of Broccoli Rob. Mm. And I was really pretty provincial, I would say, going to New York. And also not used to being around wealthy people in fancy restaurants. And for me, that was a fancy restaurant. You know, I mean, it's not a super fancy restaurant now, I know. But for me, that was a big deal. Even though I was like 30 years old, I'd never really been around people who order food and don't eat everything on their plate. Like just the idea that you that you would intentionally order something to have a few bites of it and push it off. Like that was so shocking to me. And it was like, oh, this is how the rich live. Like they don't care if they finish the food. You know, of course, I'm like, well, can we take that food home? And of course, you couldn't do that. And then I also realized that you had to eat food that didn't make you look like an insane person. Like if you ate spaghetti, I was going to get spaghetti sauce all over. You had to cut it up somehow. Or like I was saying, the penne, the penne is the thing. (laughs) The whole thing goes in your mouth at once. You close your mouth. It was just really another world. That's how you learn to be an adult in the shadow of the country's biggest stars. I mean, who are an example of like some of the people you would have been having dinner with? Um, I remember Sharon Stone because I remember she told us about her IQ at dinner, um, which is very, very high, I guess. She's in Mensa. You know, John Goodman. I'm just Alec Baldwin many times. Catherine O'Hara was one, which was oh my God. to me, that was the most exciting night of my life. I remember because we shared a car back to wherever she was staying. And it was like, I was like, I'm in a car with Catherine O'Hara. I'm in a car with Catherine O'Hara. Um, 
Oh my God. See my brain, all the nouns are gone. Rachel, this is what's going to happen to you. The nouns, the names, they go. I mean, there was like Nicole Kidman. Tom Cruise was one of the people we had dinner with. He was with her at the time. Well, you know, you really learned about what it's like to be in the elite world of stardom. And yes, there would be crazy people for sure. But mostly they're just doing a job at an elite level. So like I remember Nicole Kidman, like she was careful about what she ate, but not crazy, not weirdly so. Of course, she's so incredibly beautiful. But I remember her coming into wardrobe and saying, I have to wear pants like this. I have to, you know, like she was completely in control of her look. And it didn't come off as crazy narcissistic. It came off as smart about her body and the way she looks. Her favorite celebrities to eat with were the ones who clean their plates. I like women who like to eat. And I hate, I really hate commenting on food while you're eating about if it's good for you or bad for you. Either way, it makes me crazy. I just can't stand it. It's just like, just eat. I don't even like, like, this is good for your brain. And I was going to say, no, it's not. No one even has that correlation. Like, just Who told you that? You know, and then I don't want to get in a fight with people. So I always like women who just eat with gusto. Mm -hmm. I was thinking of the Jonathan Richmond song. She eats with gusto. Damn, I like it. Okay. (laughs) But Julia has a complicated relationship with food and eating. For her 60th birthday, she gave herself a gift. What was that gift that you gave yourself? I decided I was never going to diet again. And I had been listening to a podcast called Food Psychology. It was a very anti-diet podcast. On my 60th birthday, so now I'm 62, almost in a half, I said, I'm never going to do this again. And I actually think if you can go back and live your life again, the one thing I would do is never go on a diet. It actually breaks my heart how much it ruined food for me. In fact, I think it took really meeting my husband, which is now 13 years ago, who really didn't want me to diet. He liked the way I looked and he just didn't think dieting worked, but I didn't listen to him for many years. And then finally I listened to this podcast and I was convinced that dieting probably had made me heavier. Mm. You know, it's different for different people, but once I learned that 95% of people who diet gain all the weight back plus more pounds, it just was clear to me that I was wasting my time. And the worst part of it wasn't even the weight It was how it ruined food because food became the enemy. It became something you evaluate constantly. Food became good or bad. The guilt, the deprivation, and then the overcompensation. It's really just another way to control women. Here I was born at this incredible time of great emancipation, relatively speaking, to other times for women. And yet I put myself right away in this prison of my body and whether it was good or bad, how I looked and my attractiveness was so important. And and it was all under the guise of wellness and health, which I feel like the whole wellness thing is just another way of saying dieting. They've completely co-opted that phrase and ruined it. But I would say it's been a five-year effort to stop dieting. And I finally am starting to get to know myself as an eater without the dieting hanging over me. And, you know, I probably went on my first diet when I was 10. So it's really been 50 years of dieting. And I've really learned about just enjoying food and also enjoying that I get sated. I only know to stop eating when everyone else has stopped eating. Like I don't have any sense of fullness. I just eat until it's socially unacceptable to keep eating. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Like I'm just eating, eating, eating. 
it's just so sad to say that it's taken years for me to listen to my body about when it's full and when it's not full or when I'm really hungry or when I'm having anxiety, what do I really need? You know, so it's hard for me to talk about food, like for your podcast and not think of my fraught relationship with food. And by the way, I feel like I've had it less than so many women I know, maybe all the women I know. When we come back, Julia Sweeney shares her last meal, and we dig into what is perhaps Canada's most famous dessert, the Nanaimo Bar. Okay, we're going to get to the big question of the show. What would your last meal be? Okay, this is what I decided. It depends on if my husband can make the last meal. It's yeah, yeah, whatever you want. It is your fantasy meal. And the dessert is something I make. Okay, there's so many things my husband makes that is so good. But I think if I had to choose a last meal, I've been thinking about this a lot and discussing it with him. So now he knows what to do if for some reason I have a last meal. He has to be ready to go. It really would be grilled steak, but really nice prime steak. Get our steak from Costco. The nicest Um, butcher in town. Exclusive. (laughs) It would be a good steak. Rare. I like it rare. So does he. It would be grilled eggplant with olive oil and herb de Provence on it. It would be grilled corn on the cob and then grilled whatever. Like it could be asparagus. Oh, peppers. Because we're in California, we do it all year. Probably once a week we have this. We just had it the other night when I was thinking about my last meal. So it would be really grilled steak and veg. I know it's not very exciting, but my husband does it so perfectly. He makes it so perfectly. And when he does the grilled corn on the grill Mm. and he puts like some cheese on it and it's just... It's so good. And then I have a favorite wine. It's called Educated Guests. And they have a Cabernet from 2018 that I bought like a case of because I love it so much. And that Cabernet is so perfect with the steak. So I could never not have Cabernet with steak. They go together like they are the same. You can't have one without the other. And then for dessert, I would have a Nanaimo bar. Ah. You know, I live up in Seattle, and so yes, it's a Canadian thing, yeah, and I've, near Nanaimo Island. I've taken the Nanaimo the Nanaimo ferry before. Nan- it's hard to say that. So, yeah, what is in the Nanaimo bar? What are all the layers? Okay, there's it's a bar. It's an uncooked bar cookie. Well, it's a bar. I guess you just call it a bar. <laughs> the bottom, and I ma- now I make it, and I have my way of making it. Okay, mm. the bottom layer is graham cracker crumbs butter, cocoa powder, and toasted dried coconut, and a couple of eggs. Did I say butter and butter? Butter's in every layer. Oh, wait, I forgot about in the bottom layer, you put in either walnuts or pecans, chopped fine, very fine. So you make that first thing, and it's almost like the texture of sand. Put that in the bottom, then you put that in the refrigerator for an hour. Then you're making the middle part. The middle part is butter, of course powdered sugar and this custard called bird's custard that you can only get from England. That's the thing that weirdly makes it the Nanaimo bar, even though my husband said this is just cornstarch with vanilla. But I order my custard powder from England, bird's, 
And then that becomes this kind of light yellow layer on top of it. So you spread that all out, put it back in the refrigerator for another hour. And then the top is just chocolate, semi-sweet chocolate and butter. You melt those together. You put it all over the top. So now it just has a chocolate layer. And then the most important part, the flaky salt. And then you put flaky salt all over that. And then you put it in the refrigerator for another hour. So you can just do it all over a whole day. And then I cut it into little bars and then I freeze the bars. So they last because I can make a huge pan of these. And then they only take five minutes. You know, you take them out and wait five minutes. But then my husband and I, on our trip to Joshua Tree, we realized you don't really have to freeze them. You can put them in the refrigerator and you don't even have to wait the five minutes. So now you can eat them all the time. Yes. So if I'm about to be executed, I have no reason to wait for the execution. If this is my last meal, I can just have the Nanaimo bar and go in and be executed. (laughs) Oh, my God. I love that. So. Where did the Nanaimo bar come from for you? Where did you have one for the first time? How did this enter your life? I learned Nanaimo bars in Spokane, Washington, where I didn't know the word Nanaimo. I didn't know that was an island. I didn't know it was a Canadian thing. I thought it was probably somebody named Nanaimo made a bar. And (laughs) you you could get it all over Spokane. Yeah. So it was like, if you went to a bakery, you still can go to any bakery in Spokane, like Rosars or anywhere. In the bakery, they have Nanaimo bars. I just thought it was something everyone had. Then I moved to LA and I noticed there was no Nanaimo bars anywhere. Mm -mm. So then it became a treat when I went to Spokane. Then I finally decided to do some research and found out that somebody on Nanaimo Island came up with this bar. That's why it's called that. It has nothing to do with Canada or except it happens to be in Canada. Okay. And it became a huge thing in Canada. And now it's a big Canadian thing. last meal, Julia wants her husband's grilled steak. Served rare. Grilled eggplant with herbs de Provence, grilled corn on the cob, and maybe some grilled asparagus or peppers. She wants to wash it all down with a 2018 Educated Guest Cabernet and finish the meal with one of her homemade Nanaimo bars. You can't go anywhere without running into a Nanaimo bar. That's Joyce Hardcastle. I'm from Nanaimo, British Columbia. I've lived here for 48 years. And I make Nanaimo bars. Nanaimo is a harbor city located on the east side of Vancouver Island in western Canada. And it's famous for Nanaimo bars. In 1986, Joyce won a Nanaimo bar cooking contest. Ever since then, I'm the go-to person in Nanaimo and all over the world. I've had phone calls from places you wouldn't believe. Her recipe is the city's official Nanaimo bar recipe. I had a cookbook that had a recipe in it and I made it. Before the competition, I really didn't make it a lot. It was just a bar. And then the mayor at the time in Nanaimo in the mid 80s, uh, he launched this thing called the Mayor's Search for the ultimate Nanaimo bar recipe. He had been in a mayor's conference in Korea and had been sitting next to a mayor from New York. And she said, oh, Nanaimo, I've heard of Nanaimo. Do you have Nanaimo bars there? So he came back to Nanaimo and said, you know what, I think we should do something about this. So that's when he launched this mayor's search for 
for the ultimate Nanaimo bar recipe. And I want it. I want it because I'm kind of boring. Like people put peanut butter in it and Kahlua and things on top and all kinds of weird things and colors. But that's not what they wanted to represent. They just wanted Nanaimo bars. And that's what I submitted. And that's what won. It was really basic. And so ever since then, that's been sort of the flagship recipe for the city. Forever and ever. Exactly, exactly. That's what I say. When I'm six feet under, I'm going to have a pan of Nanaimo bars and some knitting needles on my chest. And in I go, you know. The New York Times described them like looking at the side of an Nanaimo bar as kind of looking at, you know, the earth and the crust and its layers. So, you know, when you're six feet under, you could become a human Nanaimo bar. You have the dirt, that's the chocolate layer. And then you're the white custard layer. We'll have to think of the rest. I mean, it's getting pretty gruesome, but I don't know. I like it. Oh, there you go. It's fun. (laughs) As far as the history of the bar, like most recipes, it's pretty foggy. But the first record of the recipe being published was in 1953. Uh, The first known publication of the recipe was in Edith Adams' cookbook. That's Nanaimo Mayor Leonard Krogh. Now, Edith Adams was a famous columnist for the Vancouver Sun, a major paper in the province, except that Edith Adams did not exist as a single human being. Is that like a Dear Abby? Was it a fictional columnist? Exactly. Exactly. That was the first time it was published. There's some suggestion it goes back before then. That recipe was also published in the Vancouver Sun in the early 50s. And it wasn't instantly popular, but over time, it became a Canadian staple. We were honored by Canada Post in the creation of stamps. They had a series, Sweet Canada Stamp Collection, and they created an enamel bar that has been extremely controversial because the proportions of the three layers are simply not correct. Very slight Graham cracker wafer bottom with a very thick middle and a very thin top. And it created a certain amount of embarrassment for Canada Post. Indeed, I received an apology, and which I accepted gracefully. Mayor Krogh said the Obamas served Nanaimo bars at the White House during a dinner honoring Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And if you're in the city, you can pick up a Nanaimo bar trail brochure and do a self-guided eating tour and visit more than 40 places serving versions of the Nanaimo bar. There's a restaurant called The Modern. They do a Nanaimo bar martini. There's another little place that does deep fried Nanaimo bars, vegan Nanaimo bars. Almost every bakery in the city sells Nanaimo bars. It's a huge, huge, big thing. Even the major chain grocery stores in town that have in-store bakeries, etc., you will find Nanaimo bar in every one of them. Nanaimo bar is sold every bakery without question. It's just part of the city's culture. A spa called House of Kyo, or maybe House of Kayo, does Nanaimo bar pedicures. I'm going to read you a little description from the website. This heavenly service begins with a milk bath, followed by an almost good enough to eat chocolate sugar scrub, leaving you silky smooth and your daily calorie intake unaffected. The scrub is followed by a rich chocolate mask and a mouth-watering vanilla custard massage. Kind of makes me think of pudding wrestling. The question I had was for this Julia Sweeney. I have to honestly say, I'm not big on television and acting and things, Both of my kids have heard of her. Mm -hmm. And so I looked her up and I did quite a bit of research. So I know who she is now. And so my question is, I wonder how her Nanaimo bars are different or the same from mine. You haven't seen her recipe or anything like that, have you? She described her recipe to me. 
And uh-huh. it sounds very traditional. She orders the bird's vanilla custard by mail from England. No way. Yeah. That's interesting that, but even now she still can't get bird's custard. Well, you could pass on to her my little secret that if she's stuck, she could easily use Jell-O instant vanilla pudding. If she's ever in an emergency and she runs out, she can fall back on Jell-O instant pudding. So. Joy says Bird's Instant Custard is available at all grocery stores in Nanaimo. It was invented in the UK in 1837 by Alfred Bird, who wanted a custard that could be made without eggs for his wife, who was allergic. I looked up Joyce's official recipe, and it looks identical to what Julia described. Julia might even be using Joyce's recipe and not even know it. Since you're the queen of the Nanaimo bar, how often is it requested that you bring them? Do you have to make them all of the time? Yes, I always have them in my freezer. I've made them for weddings. You know, you have silent auctions at places. And I do up a little basket with, um, get a pan of Nanaimo bars, a tea towel and an apron and people bid on it everywhere I go. Even now, I mean, we're talking, what, 1986, all this time later. I was just young. I was young like you. I had black hair. (laughs) You know, I was cute. I didn't have any wrinkles. I still get asked to bring them. And when I do bring them, people say, oh, they're choices. These are choices. You know, it's, it's amazing. It's truly, truly amazing. Joyce has the glory of holding the official Nanaimo bar recipe, but I wanted to know what she won back in 1986. I won a shopping spree at Safeway. <laughs> and so, so uh, That's I managed to get about $260 worth of groceries. You know, that was back in the jogging suit headband day and running shoes. So I put those on and I ran up and down the store and the fellow from the radio station ran along behind me saying, Golly, she's running fast. Oh, she's getting meat. Oh, she's putting in some sugar. You know, So this thing was aired on the radio. So you had a time limit to spend that money then? I had a two-minute shopping spree. Oh, this is yeah. my dream. I always wanted to be on Supermarket Sweep. That's yeah. really fun. I think we should all bake Nanaimo bars together. So a lot of you who have been listening to the show for a while, you might remember that during the height of the pandemic, we did Quarantine Cooking Club, and we would all cook a last meal from a particular episode over the course of a weekend. So pop over to my Instagram. Hello, Rachel Bell. It's supposed to be rainy, at least in Seattle all weekend. So I think this would be the perfect weekend to make a treat together. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Julia's take on eating alone. Julia Sweeney has written and performed several one-woman shows. How do you feel about eating alone at home or going out to eat? Oh, that's a whole thing. Okay, my husband can't stand to eat alone. I remember when we first got married. Oh, because we got married when my daughter was eight. He adopted her. We moved to Wilmette, the small town north of Chicago. And I was a housewife, basically. And I was really involved mom and Mulan schedule and all of her every activities. And I remember saying, do you mind if we just don't have dinners as a family? And that might have been the first time I saw Michael cry. Aww. Like, he was like... <gasps> What do you mean? I go, I mean, I could just make what we have and then I could save some for you. And he goes, like, I just eat it by myself. Yeah. And I go, like, well, yeah. 
a big thing for him of what family means is that you sit down together at dinner. It took me many years to understand that. <laughs> I'm the opposite. I feel so distracted by people during a meal. My best meal experiences are alone, to be honest. And when I lived in Chicago, I tried to go downtown every week. And about once a month, this is a real confession, at the Art Institute in Chicago, which I was like a church to me. I knew every nook and cranny of that museum. I went really once a week. Museum. I spent several hours there. I would go to Terzo Piano, which was their fancy restaurant upstairs, and have lunch. And I would have a big lunch by myself with like one or sometimes two glasses of wine Ooh. at like noon. So European. And yeah. And I would make it last like a long time. And I would read my books. Sometimes I'd write journals and I would have an appetizer and I'd have a main course wow. and the food was so incredible and I'd have dessert. And that is probably my happiest eating experiences of my life. And I remember Michael and I, he looked at the credit card bill or something and said, did you take somebody to lunch there? And I was like, no, that was just me. <laughs> and he'd go, wow, $115 for lunch. And I go, yeah, yeah, that's right. Took that's what I did. Lunch. That's right. I took myself to lunch. And I really treated myself to a nice lunch. And he was so surprised by it. God, that really probably is some of my, like if I had to add up like my 20 happiest times of my life, mm. those lunches were probably some of them because the food was great. I really could concentrate on the flavors. Yes. I could really concentrate on what they were doing with the salad or that. I would always ask about the wines and try to get something that worked with whatever I was eating. It made a huge difference. I guess I was a long way from Orso when I started on Saturday Night Live, <laughs> eating by myself. Um, but I like eating by myself. And when I'm upset about something, eating by myself is a big balm, you know, for me. Mm -hmm. I almost always would prefer to eat by myself, even though my husband and I now, we eat dinner tonight together every night. And I love him so much. And he's such a wonderful cook. And that's a beautiful experience too. But when it's like almost orgiastic, my excitement, <laughs> it's alone. I mean, it really is alone. And Michael, when I told him that, he was like upset. It was yeah. almost like saying, I want to have sex alone from now on. Like, yeah. it's like, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what? I think it's because uh, maybe it's could be in a woman, maybe other, I don't know. I haven't really talked about this with other people, but I'm so other focused when I'm with another person, I am so focused on that person. It's hard for me to concentrate on anything else unless I'm alone. Then I can concentrate. And that was Julia Sweeney's last meal. <laughs> Julia, thank you so, so much. This thank was you. so fun. Thank you. I hope you keep in all the stuff you said. I will. Every I'm, last bit. Okay, good. Yeah. If you happen to be in the Spokane, Washington area, go see Julia perform this Saturday, March 26th. It's actually a live taping, so you can say you were in the audience. And she has two shows, one at 4 p.m., one at 8 p.m. And I saw Julia perform last weekend in Seattle. It was a little bit of a practice show. It was hilarious. If you loved listening to her here, you will love her live show. She is just as charming and funny and warm, and you're going to want to be her best friend. I'm pretty sure this is the last one I'm ever going to do because um, it's too hard and I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm old. 
And it's yeah. a good time to stop. I'm happy because it's where I had my first job was at the Fox Theater selling popcorn. Um, it's the most beautiful theater, the Fox Theater. And I've done many things there and helped raise money to restore it. It's really meaningful that I'm going to be at the Fox Theater. Go to juliasweeney.com or you can find a link in the show notes of your podcast app. Thanks to Joyce Hardcastle. You can find her recipe for Nanaimo bars on the city's website, all over the internet, or in a link in our show notes. It's promoted Nanaimo in a fun way, and it's brought me out of a shell I used to be in, and I'm constantly now phoned and referred to and things like that, and I just really enjoy it. It's really fun. And you said it brought you out of your shell. Did you used to be really shy? I did. When I won that competition, I nearly crawled under the table, but, (laughs) oh, no. Oh, no. And and ever since then, I've just slowly learned not to be so afraid of it. Like today, just before you called, I had big knots in my stomach thinking, oh, no, oh, no, not again, not again. And uh, it's weird. It's really funny. So, yeah, yeah, I'm not this flamboyant person. Thanks to Nanaimo's mayor, Leonard Krogh. Have you ever made Nanaimo bars yourself? Personally, no. I'm a consumer, not a creator. I challenge you, Mayor. I feel like as the mayor, that should be, you know, the votes come in and then you have a Nanaimo bar off with your competitor and that's how you get into office. I feel like you have to make them after all this time. That's a very interesting proposition. I am a good cook, but the baking have tended to leave to my my wife in our relationship. I won't call it pink jobs and blue jobs, but I do the basic cooking. She does the confectionery. So maybe I'll go home and try and persuade her that, you know, in order to support her husband's possible re-election, she needs to step up to the cake pan, so to speak. On a technicality, it's not baking. It is an unbaked dessert. So you can just tell her it's cooking because it's all stovetop and fridge. You've done your homework. I like this. I feel like I should move to Nanaimo now because I feel like an expert. Uh, Well, I must tell you, it's a beautiful city. And we have the most moderate climate in the British Commonwealth. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me. Original theme music by Prom Queen. And we would love it if you supported the show completely for free by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and now on Spotify. Make sure you're following along on Instagram. Hello, Rachel Bell. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. Anyway. Anyway, yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Nice. Guess what? I'm recording. It's working. So I saved that. You're awesome. I did it. I did it. Okay. You're a technological genius. Thank you very much. Okay. Have you ever just had a big glass of half and half? I used to drink the little things at the restaurant. Oh, you did? No, because can I just say, it's good. You get sated from it. You know, the fat in it, really. I bet. And you feel taken care of. (laughs) I brought the hot dog buns to the couch, and I did this thing that I liked to do when I was a kid. I would tear off pieces and squeeze them (gasps) to make the bread real (laughs) dense. And then I smear a little butter and ate it, and I ate two hot dog buns that way on the couch last night. (gasps) No, I totally get it. I totally, totally get that. We used to get Wonder Bread. There was a Wonder Bread factory in Spokane. My best friend's mother worked at the Wonder Bread factory. But we would get the white Wonder Bread and I would take off the crust and smash the middle and do little hosts. I would make hosts. What's hosts? Hosts like um, a priest would have, like the body of Christ. Oh, I'm a Jew. I don't know about this. (laughs) It's like, what's hosts? (laughs) And then I would be the priest. Yes. And I would serve, and I would say body of Christ. <laughs> and, then, and then sometimes I'd eat the body of Christ. Oh, Christ. Very nice body today. Mm. 
Oh, Christ, it's quite My delicious sister today. and I would play that too because we would see it on movies and we thought it was yeah. fun and we would do it with crackers, just any kind of, we'd, you know, put it on. Yeah, put but it on the tongue. When computers were becoming big, that's how old I am, and Quentin Tarantino and I were hanging out a lot, he was like, I will never have a computer. And he didn't even want a cell phone. He did get a cell phone. This is kind of before he became famous, then he got famous. His strategy with his cell phone was to just dump his phone number and get a new cell phone every year and then only tell a few people who what, mm. what that number was. So for for many years, I was one of those few people. And then there was one time where I wasn't. <gasps> and, <laughs> and you called and it just went like, do, do, yeah. do. And then it was like, oh, it happened. You're gone. Um, but I often wonder, oh, you know what? He sent me an email in the last year. So he is on, he must have a computer. But I, I never even, because I was like, Quentin, you've got to go on the computer and see all the stuff about you. <laughs> and he's like, I don't want to know that. It just clutters up my head. I think of that all the time. But anyway, he does email. I guess I never put that together. But anyway. Well, maybe in that email, he gave you his new number. Go back and check. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you didn't read Now email. I want to call. He's in a, we've gone to different categories of person and social life, he and I. Yes. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rachel Bell. I'm Rachel Bell. I am Rachel Bell. I'm Rachel. <laughs> so if you had to name a number two thing that Nanaimo is known for, what would you say? Probably the historic bathtub race. Historically, up until COVID, of course, had folks uh, coming all the way from Australia to compete in the famous bathtub race. What is a bathtub race? Basically, it's a souped up bathtub with a, an outboard motor. And uh, in the early days, the bathtub race was from downtown Nanaimo to downtown Vancouver across the Strait of George, as it was then known, now known as the Salish Sea. 